0: Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of gratitude for God's Word, and if you have a copy of Scripture, turn in it to Luke chapter 6 is where we will be in our sermon time this morning. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Bible, we invite you to grab uh, one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 862 is where we will be together this morning. Since early December, we've been walking through Luke's Gospel. We took a break last week to look at the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday from Revelation chapter 1. But this morning we get right back into our study of Luke's Gospel by looking at chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. So let me go ahead and read our text for us and then pray once again briefly. that yeah, God would bless our study of His Word and then we will begin our study together. So let us hear now, for God is indeed speaking to us now through his perfect and powerful word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from no one, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do unto you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even as your Father is merciful. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Our oh, Father, we bow before you now, each of us in our own ways, needing your kindness and mercy this morning. We are indeed grateful for the love that You have shown us in Jesus Christ and we pray that we would be renewed in that love this morning as we study Your Word. That Your love would even extend to those that do not yet know You this morning that their eyes may be opened to behold the wondrous things, the wondrous truth of Jesus Christ that's found in our text. So help us to hear, we pray, with delight, with faith and repentance for me to preach as I ought with boldness, with clarity, as a dying man unto dying people. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, my wife Emily had to update the operating system on her phone. And it is one of the consequences, isn't it, of living in our digital and technological age that often our devices are needing to update themselves in order that we can get the latest and the greatest of all the tricks of the trade and use it to the fullest of its power. And I'm not sure exactly what your perspective is on updates to operating systems and software. Maybe you're the kind of person that sets it to automatic and you just tend to forget about it. Or you might be a person more like myself that puts it off to the very end, knowing that whenever you update the system, it tends to do something to the device that you didn't want it to do and it disrupts your normal workflow and your preferred way of using that technology. And I tell you that because what we're going to see this morning in this glorious yet simple text before us in Luke chapter 6 is the degree to which Jesus intends and indeed does change the default settings of his disciples. And I wonder if it's a change as we walk through it that you welcome, that you receive with gladness, or might it just be so revolutionary that it's a change that you tend to want to put off because it disrupts your preferred way of living and relating to others. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, let's remember where we are at this story of Jesus Christ and his ministry according to the Gospel of Luke. If you scan your eyes back up to chapter 6, verse 12, you'll see where we were two weeks ago. Uh, We saw Jesus, one night, he goes up onto a mountain and he spends the entire night praying to his Father. And we find out as the verses continues that he's praying clearly for wisdom, for guidance as he is soon that next morning to select 12 men whom he commissions to be his apostles, the sent ones, uh, the ones on which he was going to build his new covenant church. And so when those 12 disciples and those 12 apostles are set aside and they are called to the ministry you'll see now in verse 17 that he came down with them and stood on a level place and he begins to speak the good news he begins to teach he begins to heal people of their diseases and then what we began to look at in verse 20 through 26 is what's often called the sermon on the plain because Jesus is standing there on a level place We said it's likely a variation uh, of a sermon that is a little bit more famous, the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and it was the first extended look we've received in this gospel about the content in Jesus' preaching. Uh, The first five chapters, in many ways, Luke has been intent on us understanding that his teaching was astonishing, his preaching was powerful, but we hadn't received an opportunity to see what exactly a sermon from Jesus Christ would have looked like or or sounded like. And he began by pronouncing kingdom blessings and curses on those who would follow him or at least those who are hearing him. And we said that the first few sections of his sermon or simply ones in which he is telling his disciples that they're to live now in light of his coming kingdom. And it was a sermon that was meant to, in many ways, turn upside down the common notions about what kingdom life for the Messiah would look like at this time. And the sermon continues this morning, and really I think what we're looking at in verse 27 through 36, you could say is the centerpiece of this sermon on the plain. It surely gives us the crown jewel of Christian ethics, the the center part of what it means to be a disciple, a center part that you could define as a self-sacrificing love. And so as we walk through this text, we're going to see Jesus' radical call to a love that is full of generosity, a love that is full of mercy. And kids, as we look through this text, I want you to think about the various ways in which it tells you to love people that don't like you. And let that even lead you to think about how Jesus has loved you. And if you're a member here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I hope that you'll give careful attention even to this text because... Jesus' is teaching in the rest of the New Testament makes clear to us that love for others is the main apologetic in the Christian life. There is something powerful in love not only for those in the covenant community but love those who oppose you, those who are enemies towards you and it's going to be by this kind of love that the world will know we are disciples of this very King. And so the simple message of our text is we're to love as Jesus loves. We're to love as the Father has loved us in Jesus Christ. And even as we walk through this text, I think we're going to see really for the first time in Luke's gospel how skillful Jesus was as a preacher. Because maybe you noticed as we were walking or reading through the text just a few minutes ago how it's full of bold declarations, But also illustrations and applications, rhetorical questions, a powerful exposition of God's character. And so if you read through it, at least I was reading through it over the last few weeks, at first glance the argument in this text appears pretty dense. You get four commands, followed by four illustrations, then you get three rhetorical questions, and one example that we are to follow. But on the whole, the argument is pretty simple, isn't it? As it's a command to love our enemies. So I just want to walk through it under two simple headings. The first of which is Christian love is countercultural, And then secondly, Christian love is supernatural. That's what we're meant to see this morning. And before we get to verse 26, though, I want you to remember exactly where Jesus has left off his disciples in this sermon. So look back at verse 22. At what Jesus said in his final blessing or final beatitude. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And you'll see in verse 23, he says, Not only are you to rejoice at that persecution and opposition, you're to, in fact, leap for joy when such difficulty comes. And then what we get now in our text is a further elaboration on how true disciples are meant to respond to this kind of opposition, this kind of persecution for trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So look again at verse 27 at what he says even leading into 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, And pray for those who abuse you. Now students, think with me, if you will, about someone maybe recently in your life that has opposed you. Someone maybe in your school that has been something of a bully unto you. Maybe even more pointed, I think, to Jesus' point. Someone that has opposed you because of what you believe to be true about Jesus and what kind of life you therefore live as a result. And how do you tend to want to respond to that kind of a person? How do you tend to even respond to that kind of opposition? Well, Jesus says the right response of his genuine disciples are summarized, you notice, in those four commands, four verbs. Love, do good, bless, and pray. I wonder if that is your response to those that oppose you to enemies that you may have. I thought about it earlier this week, you can in some ways think about this text or this sermon as a whole as as an automobile, if I can say that reverently. It's communicating to us the nature of true life in in Jesus Christ, and the central part of that life is love, and, and its four wheels on which that love is meant to move are these four commands. Love, do good, bless, and pray. And the genuine life of discipleship in Christ is never going to advance. It's never going to move forward if any one of these commands are not thriving and growing in our own hearts. And so when Jesus gives such a countercultural command, uh, we need to understand why he then proceeds to illustrate it. Because most people at this time that would have been hearing Jesus would have agreed with an ancient soldier named Lysias who said, It is well-established that you're to hate those who oppose you and love those who love you. And even in Jesus' time, the religious leaders in Judaism had created an understanding of love that really meant it only extended to those within the covenant community. So if you were outside the bounds of the covenant community, outside the boundaries of that very gathered people of God, then you had no reason to expect that you were going to receive love from those inside. The covenant community but jesus is essentially blasting those notions away saying that no love is to go outside of the covenant community even so far as to say you remember his words maybe in the sermon on the mount text in matthew's gospel you have heard it said love those who love you and hate those who oppose you but i say love your enemies and you can kind of begin to think, if you situate yourself, maybe an original here or there on that plane as Jesus is delivering a sermon, they begin to think, okay, Jesus, well, what exactly does that kind of love look like? I have enemies, I have opponents, I have people that make my life miserable. So, what exactly does that mean on a day to day basis? So, he begins to rattle off a series of illustrations in order to make application of these commands. And the first illustration tells us that radical love sacrifices personal dignity. And notice what he says next in verse 29. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now this is a text that's been used throughout church history in many ways to argue as a, uh, to be a proof text for pacifism. But we need to say that surely Jesus, in saying those who strike you on the cheek, extend the other cheek as well, surely he isn't saying that if you're living in some sort of a physically abusive relationship, Christian love demands that you stay there. We know this is true in many ways. You can get at it by the fact that Jesus has ordained governments, human governing authorities to whom he has given the power of the sword to execute judgment on those who do evil. Or even in Matthew's gospel itself, it talks about this principle of the lex talionis, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus never says in his gospel, hey, when they pluck out one of your eyes, give them the other eye. Or if they pull out some of your teeth with a punch, give them the rest of your mouth for the left-handed hook to follow. But he is saying something very specific in the time. It's a a backhanded slap that he is speaking of. And one commentator says, is in this time in the Jewish world, it was akin to a physical insult. It was normally even often used to symbolize rejection from the synagogue. And of course, what were these very men that initially were receiving this sermon, the 12 disciples, what were they soon going to find? Insult? We even saw it, didn't we, in verse 22. People reviling and spurning their name, slapping them as though they didn't belong within the synagogue. So Jesus is speaking here more specifically about enduring insult turning the other cheek to receive yet another for the sake of Christ, sacrificing personal dignity as a demonstration of radical love. And then the remainder of the illustration in this text, I do think all kind of speak to a radical love that sacrifices personal property. Because notice how Jesus proceeds to preach in this sermon. Midway through verse 29, he says, "...and the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either." Give to everyone who begs from you, and from no one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And of course, in case you want to know what all the other situations that might be in your mind look like, he says in verse 31, this golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And I think the simple point of these illustrations is is sometimes Christian love, genuine discipleship for Jesus Christ, means a loose grip on the things of this world, willing to give anything and everything in service to another, even when they don't deserve it, willing to have everything taken away as an example of love to Jesus Christ. So it's a radical love that is self-sacrificing at its core. And these examples, it sacrifices personal dignity and property, and it means doing good to those as we would want to have good done to us as well. So I wonder when you think about these kind of commands, uh, what type of response do you find normal in your life? What type of response do you find to opponents and to enemies? Well, we know, don't we, that if you've ever been a youth sports coach, there are certain instincts that are ingrained uh, with every young athlete. So. You can think about basketball players. Sometimes you have guys or young boys or girls that uh, seem to have an instinct that keeps them from ever driving into the lane and they always wanna work about the perimeter. Or maybe it's the young quarterback that whenever he senses pressure will never step up into the pocket. Instead he's gonna scramble to the outside. Or as my children are now just learning to golf, it's the instinct to always grip it and rip it and never realize that sometimes it's better just to go straight and short down the fairway. And you do know, don't you, that there are certain instincts we all have in our spiritual life. That we're born into sin, we're rebels against God from birth, and then when enemies and opponents come before us, our instincts in sin is to do one of two things ordinarily, retaliate or self-justify. When someone insults us, we want to give some sort of vindication or justification as how they have gotten their argument wrong or misread the situation. Maybe even more so, we want to retaliate in kind. And do you see how Jesus' commands unto love of enemy here does away with retaliation and self-justification? It's a kind of love that's meant to be growing within the lives of God's people and displays itself ordinarily by increased humility. When you go through difficulty, when you go through seasons, of evil doing towards you, do you find yourself increasing in humility, willing to bear that shame, willing to bear that burden? For of course, Jesus Christ bared it in our place. About six or seven years ago, I guess it was probably five or six years ago now, I came across a graduation speech that was delivered by a man named David McCullough Jr., His father is a really well-known, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, and McCullough Jr. was an English teacher at Wellesley High School up in Massachusetts and had delivered a graduation speech that became something of a viral sensation. So he mounted this podium that was on the football field of the high school. Before him, if you can imagine the scene, would have been a sea of seniors dressed in identical cap and gowns, ready to graduate, And he's wanting to fix their gaze, to steal their mind for the world they're getting ready to walk into as independent men and women. And his graduation speech kind of broke with all norms because you could summarize it, and he in fact did himself, summarize it with four words, you are not special. (laughs) And it sounds, doesn't it, quite discouraging for kids that are about ready to go off in their own into the world. It was actually a much more encouraging speech at its core, but a simple point was, most of you are living an ordinary life and are performing with ordinary diligence and be okay with that kind of ordinary way of living. And Jesus is actually going to do something now in verse 32 and following as he's going to challenge what is the ordinary way in which the world extends and shows love saying that the ordinary way you want to love people is really not all that special. Notice verse 32 through 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. The point is, Christian love is to be countercultural, isn't it? It's to be altogether different. It's a kind of love that the world is not used to seeing. It's a kind of love that, when it's pressed into situations of hardship and difficulty, it comes through with unusual sweetness and sacrifice for the good of the other and for the glory of the Father. So think about how this ought to play out in an ordinary local church like our own. It's a love that knows no preference. It's a love that spends time with people who don't share our common interests or common passions. It clearly is a love that is never cliquish, that devotes itself to the inner ring of disciples who are most like you. It's a love that is reaching out. It's a love that extends beyond what the world would normally do with love. It's a love that's not expecting to get anything back in return from the world. It's totally countercultural. And then what you're going to see in verse 35 to 36 is not only that Christian love is supernatural, but actually our love, our life of love in Jesus Christ should expect something in return. The question is, well, where is that return and reward coming from? So notice now verse 35 as we consider a love that is indeed supernatural. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Okay, just pause right there. Love your enemies, he says. Don't expect anything from them in return. A return of money, a return of love, a return of comfort, a return of worldly pleasures and possessions. But he is going to say, isn't he, That we're going to get something actually in return for that love. And we should love in faith of these heavenly rewards. And the first of which is a heavenly bounty. Because notice he says, your reward, when you love in this way, your reward will be great. Do you know that God rewards his children's obedience and faithfulness? Sometimes I've found in my own life that there tends to be something maybe within us, maybe it's just me, that thinks that understanding God's rewards for obedience and faithfulness some way infringes upon His graciousness towards us in Jesus Christ. But it's surely not the case. Maybe you could do something the rest of this month is just read through uh, the New Testament with some help of friends or help of some study aids and see everything that the New Testament has to say about rewards that belong to those who trust in Christ. Rewards that the Father delights to shower upon His children. And you'll find that it's everywhere in the New Testament. And you'll find not only, of course, in our verse, that there is a reward, but that it's going to be great. And maybe you're like me and you want to know, well, what's the reward? What exactly is this great prize that awaits those who walk in diligence and love towards their enemies? Well, it doesn't tell us. But it's again reminding us, as we talked about two weeks ago, there's something within the Christian life as Christ's disciples that is always encouraging us to live now in light of what is coming. To live by faith, not by sight, in light of a promised heavenly bounty. And then the second promise we get here is a heavenly identity. Notice how the verse continues. He says, and you will be sons of the Most High. I want to be careful, of course, on verses like this, lest we get the teaching of Christ regarding salvation altogether wrong. Because what he, what he isn't saying here is that we are received into God's family because our love for enemies functions as something like a payment to earn our way into that family. But he is saying that proof that this love of enemies is proof that you are indeed a member of the father's family that you are a child of God that you can rest in the assurance of knowing that you belong to his heavenly family when you love others like this because it's impossible to love others like this apart from the gift of the spirit and trust in Jesus Christ who himself loved us while we were still yet his enemies so this is the reward this is the expectation that we're supposed to be looking for in our life of love a heavenly bounty, and a heavenly identity. And you'll notice as the verse continues that he now calls our attention to remember the very character of the Father as we walk forward in love. I remember a story from R.C. Sproul, that late great theologian and founder and president of Ligonier Ministries. He told the story of one time Ligonier had brought in a consultant with the ministry to talk about its long-term vision 10, 20-year plan, and this consultant sat down at a table with R.C. and asked him, okay, what is it that you want to teach most to those who aren't Christians? If you could teach one thing to those who don't know the Lord, what is it that you would teach them? And R.C. said, well, that's easy. They know that God is, but they don't know who God is. Okay, and he wrote down, this consultant wrote down that answer, said, okay, very good, very good. Now, what is it that you want most to teach to those who do know who God is? He said, well, that's easy also. What the Christian church needs today, more than anything else, is an awakening to the character of God. And even Jesus seems to want to remind us, doesn't he, to be reawakened to the character of our Father? Because notice what verse 35 and 36 tells us about our Heavenly Father He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So kids, maybe this is something good you could talk over lunch today with your parents. The ways in which God is kind and merciful to you. Even in Matthew's account of this sermon, he talks about God's kindness being so broad and so extensive that it even extends to those who don't know him and don't trust in him. So full of mercy And kindness is God. And where is it of course that we find His mercy and kindness on full display? It's at the cross of Calvary where we who were born into sin, we who are dead in our trespasses and deserve God's judgment, deserve God's eternal torment and punishment, we who are content to rebel against Him satisfied in our disobedience, satisfied with not loving others, satisfied with unbelief towards God, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to do that which we could never do, to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, while we were still yet sinners, did we not just read this? While we are still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So great is the Father's love for enemies. So maybe you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never even experienced this kind of love Well, let me encourage you, if you would, to persevere and be steadfast in attending a church community like Redeemer. Because the hope is here, if you stayed not very long, you would see something of this kind of love and welcome extended towards you. But also the clear expectation and exhortation of our text is that you would indeed turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, that you would know that He is kind and merciful, that He loved you with an eternal love, a sacrificing love that gave Himself Because, of course, Jesus Christ, if you know the prophecies of the Old Testament and the witness of the New Testament, his cheek was slapped. He was punched. He lost everything in order that we might gain everything. Did he not also pray for his enemies? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did good to those who have done him wrong. He loved those who hated him. And now he delights to welcome them even into his family. What good news it is, this kind of countercultural and supernatural love that now we're to mirror and reflect in our life in Jesus Christ. I've spent the last few years studying a particular figure in the 19th century. And so as I've tried to understand this guy named Robert Murray McShane, I've had to give attention to kind of the broader movements in the 19th century world. And some of you may remember this, that there are so many different movements... Late 1700s, even throughout the 1800s, that are often articulated as revolutions. You had the American Revolution, you had the Industrial Revolution, you had the Romantic Revolution, the Commercial Revolution, the French Revolution. It's why even one scholar calls the 19th century the time of, of revolution. Of course, when Christ comes, what is he bringing? The kingdom of God, long prophesied and promised, which is nothing less than a revolution. In terms of our life, it's nothing less in this text, a revolutionary and radical love that breaks with all common principles in the world and all expectations from those who would be normal citizens in the place where we find ourselves. As it's totally countercultural and totally supernatural. So, what I want to do as we uh, begin to close is to think more particularly about verses 27 and 28. I you know, said so there's something like maybe four wheels on the car of Christian discipleship. In some ways, if you look again at these four commands in verse 27 through 28, I do think it's proper for us to say as what Jesus has in mind is we're to love our enemies by doing good to them, blessing them, and praying for them. So then Christian love in our life ought to look like, first of all, a love of action, doing good to those who have done wrong to us. That's why in... John's first letter you'll find, he says, Christian, let us not love in in word only, but in word and deed. It's a love that Christ is calling us to that isn't this kind of sentimental, romantic notion of love. It's actually a love that that moves, that acts, that has hands and feet to it as we seek to love those who have wronged us. Of course, secondly, it's a a love that comes through its words. We love with our words because we bless those who curse us. And picture the scene that we probably don't get that that often in our uh, North American context. If you were walking out your door and the neighborhood knew that you loved the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him, and as you were going on your nightly constitutional, you pass house number four on the left, and you hear from an open window that's enclosed only by a screen an old neighbor saying, Curse you, Christian! And yet you respond, Thank you. I love you. I hope you come to know this Lord that I love so much, a kind of graciousness and and gentleness with your words that is, of course, in our cynical context, in every way, radical as we relate to those to whom we find. And the third one is, of course, we love with our prayers. So I, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've heard that name before, call this the supreme command of love, to pray for those who abuse you And if you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, you know that he knew this via experience as he was imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II. Supreme command of love, he said, was to pray for your enemy, to take them by the hand and lead them to the Father. And surely there is something supreme about the command to pray for your enemies because it's there that you can't hide. Don't you know it's true that we can, with our actions and words, appear to love our enemies? but we can't stand before the throne of grace and genuinely plead for our enemies in the presence of God. What an amazing thing it is to find ourselves growing in prayer for our enemies because maybe you know this even by your own experience. You can't pray for those who oppose you very long before you start to feel different towards them. You start to actually want to do them good. Hope that good comes into their life. Hope that a change comes that brings glory to God. So a love like Jesus Christ is a love that has hands and feet. It's a love that is communicated with our mouths. And of course, it's a love that falls on its knees. As we come before the Father in earnest pleading and petition for those who do, in fact, hate us. So I wonder if Jesus has changed these kind of default settings in your spirituality. How do you tend to respond to those who oppose you? And I pray that even you leave this morning with renewed hope that this can be true in your life. Because one of the great gifts, of course, that Christ has poured out onto us is the Spirit, the very Spirit of holiness, who works this kind of life in us, that we might indeed reflect the love of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father that even went to those like us who were his enemies. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess even this morning that we are a people who know so little of the immeasurable love that You have shown unto us in Your Son. We do pray that Your Spirit would work within us even now that we might begin to comprehend, to have the strength to know what is the breadth and length, the height and depth that surpasses all understanding, this love of Jesus Christ for us. Help us to know it that we might live it. Help us to love it that we might show it. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.